As Grace said, this is a fine little handout. I went and grabbed one. Classes for everybody, class for college students, class for youth, class for women, class for men. Not bad. Whoever made this. Good job. Uh, it's over at the info table to whoever asked. Oh, no, no, that's good. That's good. Oh, okay, that was a J.C. Dwiggins question. Good, yeah, it's over at the, over at the info table. Very good. Lakeforest.org slash LCD classes, in fact. I'm Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Good to be together as a church family. Now, every week I say one of the pastors here, as you may know, I, my percentage of that is about to drop again because uh, this afternoon we have an ordination service. Gray is pulling like triple duty today. We will, uh, this afternoon, ordain uh, Grace Seegers. The service is at 2.30 uh, at the Davidson College Presbyterian Church at their Lingle Chapel at the corner of Main and uh, Concord Road. It's always open, Lingle Chapel. Very pretty, pretty place. That's why we're having the service there. It's always open. We're just going to just... No, we actually told them we were coming, and they said we could. Don't worry. We won't be having the outside service today uh, for many reasons. Uh, but we're excited for that and to welcome Gray as a, uh, an ordained minister to our staff. So for the last time at my current percentage of this, I'm Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Percentage keeps dropping. But it's always good to be together as a church family. Whether you are cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there is room for you here. This is a safe place for you to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. The round reminds us that we're all active participants as we stay on this journey together. We're all here to receive something this morning. We also all have something to give. So as we soak in the grace and truth of God's love, we can also pour out love by serving one another. We're continuing our series today on the book of the Bible called Daniel. Daniel is an Old Testament book. That means it's part of the Bible that predates the earthly ministry of Jesus. If you are new or if you have not started, we are encouraging you to read the book of Daniel during this series. It's 12 Bible chapters long, so it's not a super long book. But we would encourage you to read the book of Daniel and see what God might teach you through your study of, of the Bible. Today we're in Daniel chapter Five, And so that's sort of where we'll pick up. And of course, if you don't have a Bible, you're always free to take the one in the chair as our gift to you. The setup team would personally come to your house and thank you for taking a Bible out of the chair so that they don't have to pick it up next week. In this series, we are trying to acknowledge the reality that the U.S. culture is changing and has been changing for some time and will continue to change. As part of that change, God and the search for God and love for God will continue to become more and more marginalized. That's not to say that it's going away, but God and the search for God and love for God will not be as front and center as it's been at times in the past. Some people think that's a good thing. Some people think that's a bad thing. What I'm trying to say is it's a thing. It is happening. How can we be ready for the change as people who follow Jesus, or maybe you're here exploring Jesus, the person and the claims of Jesus, how can we stay engaged with a culture while at the same time not being indistinguishable from a culture? How do we avoid the pitfalls of complete conformity and needless separatism? Is there any third way in between those? This is why I'm excited we're studying Daniel. Because Daniel was an Israelite whose primary desire was to love God and live for God. But he was forced to live his life in Babylon. Babylon was a place where Daniel's God was marginalized, not talked much about. 
They, Babylon had their own gods, and boy, did they love those gods, but they didn't care much for Daniel's God. Daniel had to live his life in the midst of Babylon out of a primary desire, though, to love God and to live for God. But what's so interesting about Daniel is that Daniel became esteemed by the Babylonians. Daniel was uh, uh, distinguished. He was not indistinguishable from the Babylonian culture. He was distinguished. He was different, uh, but he was different in a good way. He was distinct in a good way. He was authentic in his distinctness, but he was also uh, esteemed for the ways that he was distinct. He was refreshingly distinct, not kind of weird distinct. Daniel did not just survive Babylon. Daniel thrived in Babylon. Daniel was someone whose faith in God guided him, but that didn't mean that everybody hated him. So I think we all have a lot to learn from Daniel about how we too might thrive in our culture. So today we pick up at Daniel chapter 5, Daniel chapter 5, Daniel chapter 5. We heard earlier some of this chapter as Chris read it to us. In this chapter, we are comparing two kings. That One of the major points of this chapter is to compare two Babylonian kings. Up until this point in the book, the king had been named Nebuchadnezzar. Well, now he's gone, and his son Belshazzar is the new king. Now, this is a lot of bubbles you have to bubble in on the Babylonian standardized test, right? Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, although if you're the king, I bet you have people who bubble the bubbles in for you, so they might not have even known this, but they have these super long names. Nebuchadnezzar is gone. Now we're on to Belshazzar, and it's the contrast between the two that makes up part the, the real meat of chapter 5. So here's kind of my outline for today. I would like to walk through chapter 5 to highlight the differences between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar, and out of those differences, those contrasts, we want to highlight two key decision points as people who live and want to thrive in Babylon. And then at the end, I'll circle back to Daniel and talk about Daniel's role in their lives. Does that make sense? So we're going to walk through chapter 5, highlight some differences, two key decision points out of those differences, and at the end, we'll circle back to Daniel and talk about Daniel's impact in the life of these two kings. So everybody get the outline? Good. The folks at 815 got the outline too and got the sermon. So if the 815ers can get it, you can certainly get it. You can certainly get it. I told the folks at 9.30, if you ever want a little more leg room in worship, we love that you come to whatever service you come to. If you want a little more leg room in worship, 8.15 has a little more leg room than 11. Just a little, though. Not a ton, but just a little, if you ever want to give it a shot. Here we go. So in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar is the king. He's going to throw a banquet. He invites his officials, his nobles, his wives, his concubines. He remembers that his father, Nebuchadnezzar, when he had conquered Jerusalem, he stole some golden goblets from God's temple. Belshazzar, not the best decision maker ever, sends some people to go get these golden goblets and bring them to the banquet. Verse 3, they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. This is a bold move. And one that shows that Belshazzar has no real concern for the God with a capital G. He's, he's drinking at this feast out of goblets stolen from God's temple. Verse 4, as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So they're just kind of sitting there laughing, having a big old time, you know, drinking uh, 
praising the gods, it sounds like, of things they're just seeing around the room. And then all of a sudden, the mood starts to change. And the reason the mood starts to change is that over on the wall, some writing starts to appear. And Nebuchadnezzar has a, try again, Belshazzar has a really bad feeling about why this writing is appearing and what it means. You may be familiar with the term, the writing on the wall. That's a biblical expression. That's where the expression came from. God has the trademark to that expression too, the writing on the wall. So if you have ever used the expression, the writing on the wall, and you have not paid God any royalties, we're going to receive an offering here in a few minutes. I enjoy making that joke just to see people's reaction to it, whether it will be laughter or horror or both. But much like that joke, this writing on the wall really brings the party to a halt uh, because they're trying to figure out what it means, and, and the king is so terrified by what does that writing on the wall mean? So verse 7, the king summoned the enchanters, the astrologers, and the diviners. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. It's a pretty sweet reward, right? But even with this sweet reward, no one can come and tell him what the writing on the wall truly means. And this is when the queen goes over to her husband and says, Ups, sweetie. This is kind of a loose translation. Sweetie, uh, your father would have talked to a man named Daniel about these kind of things. You should really go find Daniel. Now, my wife, Mandy, uh, has really encouraged me to just stop the sermon on this point and just emphasize that it is the queen who gets this thing back on track <laughs> and pointed in the right direction. I don't think that's a central point at all in this passage. She let me keep it in for 11. She was here at 9.30, and she almost cut it mid-joke, but she, she let it, kept it in. So the queen gets this thing back on track, but Nebuchadnezzar's like, or Belshazzar's like, I'm not going to go find Daniel. I'm going to go send people to find Daniel. So he sends people. They find Daniel. Daniel comes in, and Belshazzar gives him the same little sales pitch, you know, like gold ro or purple robes, gold chain, third highest ruler. And this is what Daniel says. Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. I think that's so funny. <laughs> Daniel's like, I don't need all that stuff. You can give that stuff to somebody else. I'll just tell you what the writing means. It may be that Daniel has lived in Babylon long enough now that he knows he wants to find ways to help and serve as he is able, but he also does not want to get enamored by Babylon's promises. So before Daniel actually reads the writing on the wall, he launches into a history lesson. He launches into a history lesson and he summarizes some of the events in Daniel chapter 4, the previous chapter. Daniel sort of says, Belshazzar, I mean, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, was an arrogant man. That's a bold thing to say to the king. But he says, your father was an arrogant man. His heart was overtaken by pride. But then, you remember this, Belshazzar, your father went mad. He, he went and lived out in the field. He started eating grass like he was a cow. The Lord humbled your father, the king. But when he was humbled, your father looked to God. Your father gave his life into God's hands. And God restored him. And God transformed him. Verse 22, 
But you, Belshazzar, this is Daniel still speaking, you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Whoa. Daniel says to Belshazzar, Belshazzar, you knew all of this. You knew how God had transformed your father in his later years, but here you are praising the idols of Babylon and giving no praise to the God who holds this world in his hands. So then Daniel wraps it up by telling Belshazzar that it's God who sent the writing on the wall, though Belshazzar already kind of knew that. And then Daniel reads the words. Verse 26, Daniel says, here is what the words mean. The first word is mene. That means that God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. The second word is tekel, which means you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. The third word is perez. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. After what I imagine was a long and uncomfortable silence, Belshazzar cleared his throat and responded. Verse 29, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Well, I guess he's a man of his word, but did you hear what Daniel just said? He said, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. He said that your kingdom is going to come to an end and that the Medes and the Persians will divide it. And your response is, hey, Daniel, thanks. Here's all the stuff I promised you. I mean, it could be that Belshazzar is just dumb. But it seems more likely to me that he still refuses to humble himself before God. Writing appeared on a wall that told him he had been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And he says, thanks, Dan the man. Thanks for the info. A little bit of a, I'll believe it when I see it. Well, it didn't take long. The next verse says, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Now, we will come back next week to Darius the Mede. Because Darius the Mede passed some law about a lion's den for which he has forever lived in infamy. But that's next week. Tune in next week. Same Daniel time, same Daniel channel. This week is chapter 5, and one of the major points of chapter 5, the point I'm spending the most time on, is the contrast between these two kings. The contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. And the contrast is a very helpful one. Because the truth is, we need some north stars to help us navigate a, a changing world. We can't pay attention to everything. As Holly said last week, we, we can't die on every hill, or nor should we die on every hill. So we, we need to, some, some north stars that can point us in the right direction, some big ideas to pay the most attention to. And the contrast between these two kings points out at least two questions I'm encouraging us to ask ourselves so that we too might thrive in Babylon, that we might give our diligent attention to what's most important. So the first question this chapter poses is this, 
Do I primarily worship God or gods? Do I primarily worship God or gods? Am I worshiping God or am I worshiping idols? Here's a more interesting way to phrase it. At the deepest level of my being, do I love God or do I love what my culture idolizes? And what does our culture idolize? Well, things like uh, money, fame, power, especially political power. We can idolize comfort. We can idolize our children. We can idolize uh, sexuality or sexual allure. Now look, it's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to be famous. It's not wrong to have political views and to be happy when people who agree with you win. It's not wrong to love your kids. It's not wrong to have a good time. It's not wrong to be dashingly good-looking. And thank goodness. But good things have the ability to overstep their bounds. Good things have the ability to encroach too far, and they can become the central things in our lives. This is when a quest for money starts to crowd out godly integrity, or the quest for political power crowds out Jesus' command to love one another, or, or trying to give your kid every opportunity ensures that they don't have the opportunity to, to form a vibrant relationship with God. You can take a good thing and make it the most important thing, and thus it becomes a bad thing. Isn't that often how it goes? You let a good thing become the most important thing, and it becomes a bad thing. Daniel said to Belshazzar, you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Have you ever gotten to that point? Have you ever gotten to the point of realizing that you have been chasing after things that are temporarily fulfilling but ultimately empty? That your life has gotten all wrapped up in the things that our culture idolizes, but in doing so, the most important things have gotten crowded out? If you've ever gotten to that point, I have good news. That can be a turning point. It was for King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar changed course by committing his life into God's hands, by inviting God into the center of his life. That's where the cure began for Nebuchadnezzar. And for Nebuchadnezzar, it boiled down to the second question, which is, am I becoming humble or arrogant? So the first question is, do I worship God or gods? But the second and very related question is, am I becoming humble or arrogant? As I face the difficulties of life, as I grasp who God truly is, as I'm in these defining moments, am I depending more upon God or more upon myself? Do I bow before the God of the universe or do I strap the weight of the world on my own shoulders to try to get the result that I need? Am I becoming humble or am I becoming arrogant? Now you'll remember both Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar were arrogant people. They were both impressed at what great kings they were. Most kings are impressed at what great kings they are. 
They were both very arrogant people, but at a turning point in Nebuchadnezzar's life, when life had humbled him, Nebuchadnezzar turned humbly to God and trusted his life into God's hands. And yet when Belshazzar should have been humbled by life, when writing appeared on a wall, I had folks come up to me in the last two services like, wouldn't it be great if that happened today, if writing appeared on a wall, then I could really believe in God. Writing appeared on the wall to Belshazzar and it changed nothing. So writing appeared on the wall to Belshazzar. It told him he had been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And he said, thanks, Daniel. Thanks for telling me that. He kept walking down the path of destruction, whistling all the way. When life should have humbled him. It makes us ask the question of ourselves. Are we becoming humble or are we becoming arrogant? Do we emerge out of the defining moments of life relying more on God or relying more on ourselves. 1 Peter chapter 5 says this. This is from the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So 1 Peter chapter 5, so Daniel chapter 5 says that God uh, humbles the arrogant, but 1 Peter chapter 5 says that God lifts up the humble. In fact, having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ begins at humility. It begins at the moment we realize we cannot earn, we cannot deserve our spot in God's family. We have to receive it as a gift. Receive it as a gift from Jesus. Share in the inheritance that only Jesus is rightly due. Following Jesus begins at humility, but hopefully over time it makes us people of humility. As we realize the best things for us is to rely on God more than we rely on ourselves. That God will make us new. That God will help us see the world anew. That God will shape our morality, shape our sense of purpose, and give us an unshakable identity through Jesus Christ. Peter points out that there's a beautiful byproduct of humility, and that the beautiful byproduct of humility is that you and I can cast our anxieties, we can cast our cares onto God, because God cares for us. We realize that we cannot be and do everything that we need to be and do. We cannot be and do everything that the people in our lives need us to be and do. We're not smart enough. We're not driven enough. We're not compassionate enough. And God says we don't need to be. Instead, God says, cast your cares onto God. Let God be God. Rely on God more than you rely on yourself. Cast your cares upon the Lord because He cares for you. What God desires for us is that we would become more humble people But what this verse is pointing out is that as we become more humble people, we realize we don't have to carry the weight of the world on our own shoulders, that in fact we can cast our cares upon God, trusting that God cares for us. And so what God most wants for us and what is best for us line up yet again, that we could become people of humility and thus realize we can cast our cares upon the Lord. Why? Because the Lord cares for us. 
I checked Indeed last night. The opening for God's job is closed now. They already, this universe already has a God. You don't have to be it. I don't have to be it. In fact, it's not open anymore. We can't be it. We can let God be God. And learn to be people who kneel humbly before him and cast our cares onto him. Because he cares for us. And that's the beautiful truth at the foundation of the Christian faith. At the foundation of the Christian faith is this. The God of all creation cares for you. The God of all creation cares for you. Not just the people in your family, not just the people sitting near you, not just you plural. Yes, you plural, but also you singular. The God of all creation cares for you. And cares for you so much that he humbled himself and became human. He lived a perfect life and humbled himself to death, even the humiliation of death on a cross. Jesus' care for you is real. Jesus' care for you is sacrificial. And so you and I are invited to walk in humility, to lay our heaviest burdens at the feet of Jesus. And sometimes the heaviest burden that we bear is for another person. Sometimes the heaviest burden we bear is for another person. Because we want them so badly to humble themselves before God. We want them so badly to bow their knee to Jesus. It's what their soul is longing for, but they don't even seem to know it yet. If you've ever felt that way, what a friend you have in Daniel. You have that friend in Jesus too, but what a friend you have in Daniel. Because Daniel authentically lived out his love for God. He acted the same way to both King Belshazzar and King Nebuchadnezzar, but the results were totally different. In other words, Daniel authentically lived out his identity as God's child and trusted the results into God's hands. Daniel authentically lived out his identity as God's child and he trusted the results into God's hands. Proverbs 19.21 says that many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. I mean, don't you think that Daniel had wished that in authentically living out his identity and his faith in God in Babylon, that both Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar would have humbled themselves? And, and turn their life over to God's hands? Surely he wished they had both done that, right? But that's not what happened. But he did his part to authentically live out his God-given identity, his faith in God. But he left the results in God's hands. The truth is, the Lord Jesus cares for you. And he cares for the people that you care about. And so you and I have the, the opportunity, the honor, the responsibility to, to be refreshing and to be distinct in the same way that in a desert, water is both refreshing and distinct. But we do not need to put upon ourselves the burden of the result that comes out of our life or that comes out of our action the legacy of our life or the impact of our life. You can think about these things. You can work towards these things. But the ultimate burden of that is too much for you to, or me to bear. But we don't have to bear it. 
we are invited to cast our cares, cast our anxieties onto the Lord. Why? Because He cares for you. For you. So here's my wrap-up question today. It's this. What's your takeaway from our discussion of a tale of two kings? What's your takeaway from Daniel chapter 5, whether you follow Jesus or you're just exploring Jesus? Where do the, the, the lessons, the takeaways, what we can learn from these two kings, where does it intersect with your life? Maybe it's around one of those questions, do I primarily worship God or gods? Or am I becoming humble or arrogant? What would it look like for you to lay your heaviest burdens down at the feet of Jesus, trusting that He cares for you. So this is the weekend where we pause and remember and reflect upon the life, the work, the ministry of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He was a person who was distinct from the culture around him but ultimately was distinct in a way that that culture esteemed. That probably, hopefully sounds familiar, kind of like Daniel in Babylon. Dr. King preached this, he preached many sermons, but he preached this sermon uh, that I'm about to read an excerpt from in 1956, November of 1956, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, beautiful Montgomery, Alabama. Dr. King uh, said this. He preached, always be sure you struggle with Christian methods and Christian weapons. In other words, be distinct. Always be sure you struggle with Christian methods and Christian weapons. Never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. As you press on for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline, using only the weapon of love. Let no man pull you so low as to hate him. Let no man pull you so low as to hate him. I still believe that standing up for God's truth is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. In other words, the goal of life. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. Good words from someone who learned to thrive in Babylon. I pray that you and I too will do the same. As we worship God instead of God's, as we are led in the path of humility and humbleness, instead of the way of arrogance. Ultimately, as that allows us to let go of the burdens that weigh us down so deeply that we may cast them onto the Lord, trusting that He cares for us. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, a chance to talk to God or to listen to God about whatever it is He's stirring in your heart or in your mind. Wherever the words 
of God's Scripture and Daniel chapter 5 intersect with your life, just take a moment for personal prayer. Lord, I thank you that you are alive and active in our world today and that you have been active in this world across language, across culture, across ethnicity, across time. We see your hand in the life of Daniel. We see your life in the hand of Dr. King. We see your, uh, your hand in the, the life of people we care about. Lord, is where I get to stand, I see your, your hand in the life of so many people in our congregation. Kingdoms have come and kings have come and they have gone. You are the king and yours is the kingdom that lasts forever. And so I pray that we would be drawn in by your kingdom and that we would become people who take on the ways of your kingdom, that we would choose the way of humility, that we would choose the way of love, that we would choose to say what is true, not just what is convenient. But Lord, most of all, I pray we would not try to do these things on our own. I pray that we would do them in a vibrant relationship with you. I pray that we would lay the burdens of our life and what we hope and desire for those that we love, that we could lay these burdens at your feet, trusting that you will do far better with them than we could ever do with them ourselves. So I pray that in this time we would open up our hearts to you, our minds to you, that we would invite you to come in and that we would realize that you are making us new. Maybe that would be some of our prayers for the first time ever today. Jesus, come into my life and make me new. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.